0: Welcome to the BIV interview. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief of Business in Vancouver. My guest today is a notable Canadian businessman, mining financier, philanthropic uh, leader in our country, Frank Justra. Born in Sudbury, home of the Big Nickel. I used to spend summers with my grandparents in Val which is kind of near, uh, near there. Um, father was a nickel miner who introduced his son to a broker. And what happens next, of course, is Canadian financial history. A securities course, an early start of Merrill Lynch, a broker on the Vancouver Stock Exchange. Then a transformational role at Yorkton Securities. And the founder of Lionsgate Entertainment, former chair of Endeavor Financial. I could spend 15 minutes on your resume. Uh, loads of other entries. Um, most recently, CEO of the Fiori Group of companies and one of the world's significant philanthropists now uh, locally. Uh, certainly at first now globally in concert with uh, his very good friend former US president Bill Clinton uh, so I look forward to our discussion welcome you thanks great um was there a turning point when you're you know you're you've done all of this business and you begin to switch it back you turn the lens back and you go now um now it's a different kind of helping time
1: yeah I don't know if there was one pivotal moment, I don't think it happened quite like that. I think it was more just a slow realization of things. And it's that, that I think the biggest thing for me is that very slow, painful realization that no amount of money is going to buy you immortality. And, and I keep <laughs> yeah. going back to that. You can't issue. take it with you? You can't, and, and yeah. people say that, they repeat that. Not a lot of people think that through and believe that the reality of that situation. When you really focus on and get re- real clarity on that one issue, that you can't take it with you, that it's also meaningless in the end, that's when you start to think about purpose and other things.
0: Yeah. What, what were those purposes? Were you able, again, did you have like a, a meditative moment or two there where you started to go, okay, so purpose for me means?
1: Giving back, you know, uh realizing that I was very lucky in life, you know? I just got lucky, you know? I worked hard, but a lot of people work hard.
0: We didn't get, I mean, luck is not the whole thing.
1: It isn't, but you know, it does play a role. It's where you're born, it's when you were born, it's time and place and, you know, things happen. And and I do believe in hard work, but I think a lot of people work very hard around the world. Uh, Opportunity is not evenly distributed, you Mm -hmm. know? And, you know, sometimes you're just born the right place
0: but you know your father was a driller and a blaster Mm -hmm. I mean you you could be back in those nickel mines and
1: I I could have been and you know it just happened to be here in British Columbia and I happened to read a book that you know kind of changed my way of thinking and I happened to not like being poor (laughs) and poverty is a great motivator to you know I just didn't like the idea of not having money when I was very young so I, I, I tried to work very hard to to make you know change that
0: yeah are you shaped by do you think um, understanding inequity yeah no I think that that goes back to my
1: childhood you right. know we grew up in um, Italy and Argentina and I was nine or ten when I came to Canada um, and you know you you I saw inequality at a greater scale in, in Argentina than you know than existed in Canada at that okay. time mm-hmm and, you know, I always noticed that, you know, there were, there were people out there that had it a lot worse off than we did. And it didn't sit well with me. It just it, it bothered me from the very, very beginning. And I remember when I was about 13, for some reason, and I can't remember what inspired me to do this, but I uh, signed up for the Foster Parents Plan of Canada where, you know, you sponsor a kid overseas yeah? okay. and you write letters to each other and you send like $10 a month or whatever the number was. And I and I did it and I, and I thought, you know, this is what I need to do. And I think I was doing it off a of paper route or something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all had paper routes as kids. Those, yeah. those were, was that one of your first jobs? 20 bucks a month. That's actually a pretty good coin.
1: Well, it was. You know, $20 yeah. a month when you're 11 or 12. What was the paper? Star? No, 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 Vancouver Sun.
0: Vancouver Sun. Oh, yeah, okay. out,
1: in, uh, out in the valley. I was had oh, okay. of my little bike, and I used to run around and deliver it in the yeah. afternoon.
0: I actually ascribe some of the decline of newspapers to the fact that they no longer have children who are their carriers. Yeah. Because you could never… Who is ever going to say to you, oh, sorry, little Frank, um, I, I can't take my paper anymore? No, no,
1: not a lot of people did that. And it was always great collecting because you had to go knock on people's doors. Yes, and, exactly. And, you know, they, they paid and very few didn't pay. You know?
0: I, as a paper boy in Toronto, did you get any decent tips?
1: Christmas time. I remember at Christmas time when I used to go get my money I'd get, you know, a dollar or something. I mean, about a dollar in those days, that was like, you know, yeah. 10 chocolate bars.
0: No, no, we're about the same age. And, and <laughs> I remember a I dollar remember would be big dough. Yeah. Uh, I used to splurge
1: it uh, on payday. We used to go to the local uh, store and buy, um, uh, I think we buy Fanta um, salt yeah. and vinegar potato chips and an O'Henry chocolate bar. And that's the way we celebrate it.
0: Yeah. Well, you're not 300 pounds, so obviously no. you- Found another way. No, yeah, I changed work, my diet. Working your diet at some point <laughs> and all that, uh, but but getting back to that point about you know about inequity and all that, um, you you started a lot of the great philanthropy, I think, in this city um, around things like homelessness. Yeah, it's. Uh, do you have any thoughts? How we, do you have any thoughts about how we're how we're doing and how we're getting at this?
1: Well, it's at, at le- it's being addressed. At least it was. It's being addressed now since we started the Street to Home Foundation. Some. Eight, nine, eight or nine years ago, um, there has been a significant change in what it was. I mean, it's certainly still an issue, and thats yeah. I don't think it will ever go away. Homelessness is an issue that, you know, unfortunately, is very difficult to solve completely. Yeah. But we have made an incredible difference, and it was because um, we saw that the only way to get the job done properly was to do a collaborative effort between where you had the city of Vancouver, the province of British Columbia, private... Uh, donors all coming together and local NGOs all coming together and buying into one plant. Yeah. And that was really the philosophy behind Street to Home. And I think it's the philosophy in almost everything we do today is how do you solve a problem in a sustainable way as opposed to just throwing money at parts of the problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because one of my criticisms, of course, of the city has been that it's it's tried to suggest to people that it can do things alone. And yet history... Always shows that anything that a city tries to do in a big way requires mm-hmm. large collaboration.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's very true, and I think it's very true with respect to you know the role that businesses have to play and uh, business leaders have to play in their own community. And I think it you know it applies both in your own community it applies in international stuff too.
0: Yeah, um, do you have a do you have a, a, a an idea about how it is that we're doing? With the homelessness situation in the city, around it, 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 managing it, because it, every year it just seems to spread and come out sideways in different ways.
1: Well, from what I can gather, you know, we have the unfortunate benefit and problem of being a very desirable place to live in, um, mm. and people come from other parts of Canada because we have mild weather here, and it's it's not you know as cold as it is in Toronto in yeah. the wintertime. So, I think as we, you know place homeless people in uh, safe and secure housing with services, that's fine. We can continue to do that. But, you know, the population grows, people come here, and it's, it's hard to stay on top of it completely. I mean, it's just an, it's going to be, I think, an ongoing problem that we have here in Vancouver.
0: You know, in, in working abroad as much as you have and as, as understanding uh, the wider world in the way that you do um, – you must have turned your thoughts many times to what takes place with our own indigenous population and and what it is that we we have as a a societal obligation around around dealing with things like reconciliation uh do you, you know are we doing well
1: i don't know I, I i'm not going to pretend that i'm really on top of that subject matter because i'm not and i probably it's one of the areas that I think we, we need to look at as a foundation um, in terms of participating here in Canada. I've, you know, you can only do so much when <laughs> you're, a, I'm, a, I'm a relatively small foundation by global standards. Right. Um, so we've chosen our areas of interest uh, very carefully uh, in areas where we think we can make an impact and where we can change the model and do things A little bit differently, a little bit more efficiently, a little faster, uh, and actually make a a sustainable change. And so those areas, you know, in Vancouver, we chose homelessness. And that's a big issue. You know, Mm. that, that took a number of years for us to put that plan into place and imp- implement it. And with people
0: it. like Milton Wong at the time, right? At
1: the time, yes. Yeah. He was one of the early uh, people that came in on the foundation. And there were others too, other mm-hmm. leaders here in the city. But I think that, um, I mean, I, I just haven't spent enough time on that subject. And the rest of my time has been spent on international issues, conflict resolution, yeah. poverty alleviation, refugees, which is a very big global issue. And there's only so much I can do.
0: No, it, but you identify those three. And I, I want to explore all of them with you because I uh, – Again, I want to find out a little bit about your motivation in choosing those among other issues that are there mm-hmm. to address, and and applying the resources that you have through your foundation. And you have great resources to do it. Uh, uh, you know, I've met some people around your team around all of this too, and you hire some extremely sharp people worldwide in order to manage uh, some of what you're doing here. Uh, Where. We, Tell me a little bit individually about where some of these things came. The yeah. the poverty alleviation, I think we we've, we've talked pretty well about refugee issues. Yeah, where what that came what, out of
1: the blue. I wasn't. It wasn't something that was planned. Yeah. And uh, three years ago, I was asked by a very good friend of mine, who is now my partner in a lot of the refugee work that we do, a lot of the initiatives that we do, uh, and certainly was there early on. Um, his name is Ahmed Khan, and he he was desperately trying to get me to get involved and I was quite honestly resisting it only because I had so much on my plate already mm-hmm. and I was going you know I can't take on another big issue mm-hmm. and it's it's but he eventually talked me into it and I and I did go to lesbos to to witness for myself to try and understand what was going on because there was some coverage of the issue in in, in the media but not enough and when I got there it just just changed my whole perspective the it camp changed. Will, it. it the camp will change in, your life, right? No, and, and it wasn't just a camp. It was mostly an encounter with a boat full of refugees in the middle of the night oh. coming mm-hmm. in. You know, un, you know, as we were driving home, and it was totally unexpected. And we were alone on this beach, and you know, we're ha- helping to empty a boat. You know, we're in the water, waiting in the water, holding the boat, lifting people out of the boat, and people are crying, and you know, praying and rejoicing, and and you know, and this woman hands me her two-year-old toddler and I'm holding this kid and it just that's that was in a nanosecond I was going this is an unbelievable situation I can't I don't even know how to communicate that to people it just affected me so deeply because I have kids and Mm. I kept thinking oh my god what if what if this were me and that's the issue I mean 60% of these refugees are women and children you know escaping you know death destruction and you know just trying to keep their kids safe and
0: how do you square your sentiments that episode with what you're seeing in the way of the kind of course rejection yeah of, of of this in and and a lot of nationalism yeah that has ensued what what is behind that is that- there's
1: you know there's so much behind it i think just it's sad that it's that the issue is being weaponized in essence by those that feel they can get some political advantage by making this an issue. Okay. That's obvious to everybody. Uh, it's happening in the U S it's happening in Europe. Um, and it's
0: very sad because exactly absent in Canada either.
1: Well, it, yeah, but it's not yeah. as profound an issue here in this country. We're not, you know, we're not fighting about it every day in the newspapers. Yeah. I mean, it is an issue here too, of course. But I, I think at the extremes, you've got what's happening in the U.S., what's happening in Hungary, and 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 places other uh, other parts of Europe, where the immigration issue, because it was poorly handled in Europe, um, became. A way by which pol- certain politicians could use it as a means to put fear into people, and provide provide a solution. Quote, quote, you know that I I'm your savior. You know we're going to be, become more nationalistic, nativism and xenophobia <laughs> was rampant, yeah. and um and I think it it shows that it it does work to an extent that that approach. Yeah. and so that's why it's copied, and that's why I think it's happening in the U S. You you know the current administration in the U S. is using this as one of his main issues. And there's so much false information being peddled. And it's sad. It's sad that, you know, these poor people that are escaping either war or they're escaping security issues, gang wars, you know, all sorts of things that are going on in their home countries and they're just looking for a better life for their children are treated so inhumanely. And, and, And I think that that is the sad part.
0: I used the indigenous, uh, uh reference earlier, um, uh, for a purpose in this, which is that, you know, we, we probably in this country don't sufficiently understand our history. And what I don't understand, what really beguiles me with the United States in particular is how it is somehow walking away from its history in failing to understand how it is a country built by those coming to its shores, you know, it, it's enough that it, it has turned its back on those who were there originally, mm-hmm. but its settlers are all from other places.
1: Yes, but the harsh reality is those were white settlers from Europe, okay? And they are acceptable um, by a large part of the population. The problem is when you get settlers that are coming from countries where people are of different color, Mm-hmm. That and that's the harsh realities. You know, it's it's okay. It's okay if you came from Europe, and, and and that's sort of the administration doctrine right now that you know there are certain people that we will welcome into our country, and they are white.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: and that's and when you make that policy, it it really is a very dangerous route to, to go down, and that's what's happening.
0: Yeah, w- when you take a look at the United States and you see uh, a, a climate now that. Um, on the one hand is also calling for things like reparations for slavery, uh, and uh, one that is uh, on the other extreme, hostile to the very idea of having uh, people from Mexico coming across its borders. Is America too far gone?
1: My honest opinion, I think it's almost too far gone. I think that America is so divided right now and the divisions are becoming even more accentuated. Like it's just, it's getting worse and worse every day. There are basically two camps and you're either in one camp or the other and there's no discourse. There's no no ability to communicate. It's just very hard positions. Um, and it's a war environment between, between the two philosophies of, of politics. And I think that unfortunately, um, And there are reasons for it, and we can get into it if you like. You know Mm. why we're here in the first place, in my opinion. And why do you think why? Why Well, I think I think that the the largest problem is the wealth gap and the growing wealth gap. I think inequality and how it has that gap has evolved very quickly over the last twenty years is playing a major role. The reality is that people, most people. And we've seen this throughout history. Okay, they f- when they feel disenfranchised, they feel like they're falling behind. That you know they're not getting anywhere. They're getting poorer in terms of their um, spending power. You know their earnings aren't going up. And then they look and they see other people becoming wealthier and wealthier. They feel they've been screwed over. They just don't understand how it happened.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's not enough uh, knowledge by the public to really understand how you got there in the first place. So when you don't understand this, the root of the problem, as most people don't, it's easy to be manipulated to believe that it's some other issue that's causing your You policy. target other people. You target, well, you can target immigration, which yeah. has been done very successfully. You can target trade policies. Mm-hmm. You can target a, a lot of things and make that the enemy or the scapegoat.
0: But I could say to you as a wealthy man, they can also target you.
1: And, 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 and actually, they should target me or people like me a lot more. And that's the problem, is they're not targeting hmm. the people that have accumulated all of that wealth yeah. over the last 20 years. I mean, you look what just – in the U.S. ranks, I think, 55th in terms of wealth disparity in all of the, the developed world. Fifty fifth. I mean it's and and this has just mostly happened over the last twenty years. And to me it's a monetary phenomenon. Yeah. I think what has happened, and I've written about this in the past, is that we created a system, a very corrupt system that eventually which the financial system which imploded. And to save the financial system, we had to basically take interest rates to zero and print a lot of money. Who is that money available to? Not the average guy on the street, not the average small business owner that needed to borrow money at the bank. That money was only available to those that didn't need it, those that had enough assets to be able to borrow as much as the banks would lend them. And the banks are giving it away because it's free to them. And they can, for, I know lots of very rich people that borrow money at 2%, all they want, 2% interest rates, and go and buy all the assets, the stock market, real estate, real estate, art, you name it. And that's what's happened. And that's what's caused what I believe to be the largest transfer of wealth in human history has happened over the last 20 years.
0: Yeah. Because you would be you'd be doing actually better financially in Trump's America, wouldn't you?
1: Me personally? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With the, with the recent tax cuts, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not the one that needs it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. But the people it.
0: who don't need it are actually very happy to have it. I mean, they just, it just keeps loading on. Yeah,
1: because they're completely disconnected to what's going on at the other end. You know, it's like the old idea of the, uh, you know, that uh, poverty is alien to most rich people. You know, it's an alien concept. They, you know, they go, if you want dinner, why don't you just ring the bell sort of thing. You know, it's, they don't understand what most people have to go through that don't have the means. And it, and that disconnect is getting greater and greater,
0: but. But what I wonder about, though, Frank, is I mean, you remember those early—you know, you probably had hunger pangs, and you, you know it was, it was not always easy to put food on the table and all that. What is it about people that makes them forget that?
1: I, I think you know, and again, it's—you it, never want to label an entire class of people because it's—it's yeah. it's not fair, and there are a lot of people that come from humble means, do well, and then give back. And you know, I, But generally, people are moving into two classes in, 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 in Western society, those that have and those that don't. And that's happened over a very long period of time, and it's, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I think that there's just no connection. You just kind of lose any knowledge or idea what that other class you're not mingling with them you're not you're living in different parts of the city mm-hmm. you know or in different cities completely and you just you just don't know your your generations go by and people just become ignorant of that other class and then the problem is that, that class is becoming the large majority of the population
0: mm. i was a big fan of the hbo series this season uh, called succession which was it was very obviously it was a media baron who uh, has four kids who clearly have never had to worry for a moment in their lives mm-hmm. about what they have and now right. they're kind of confronted with the with either the loss of their power or the loss of their wealth and they actually don't want to lose their power you know right. they're, they're you know they, they don't care how rich they are they they know they're going to be rich for the rest of the lives they don't want to lose power yeah. it's that power part i think that eventually makes people a little bit aware about their Early life, isn't it? The, the, if you suddenly feel powerless, even though you've got money,
1: yeah, power is a funny thing. You know, it's like I don't know. There's something about human nature that you know, power is is a very important thing. You're absolutely right. I don't know if if it's an issue of losing it. You're asking whether th- that you, you the power makes you lose that.
0: Well, no, no, it's, a, it's not, you don't have to necessarily make a choice, but but uh, in terms of a priority, people will take the power. Oh, oh absolutely. Over the, over the Every wealth. time.
1: Yeah. It's, it's just human nature.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I wonder do you spend time talking to your fellow well off people and say, wait a minute, we, we give your head a shake here?
1: I try, um, sometimes successfully and sometimes not. Uh, I spent, uh, I remember starting about 10, 12 years ago. When I first made a decision to to become more of a philanthropist than a business person, I thought, "Well, God, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good salesman. I'll just put me in front of people and I'll, you know, the rich people and I'll I'll convince them. I can. It worked find well. Ways. Did it work well? Oh, not at all. <laughs> and um, you right. know, unfortunately, people of wealth, uh, most people of wealth, have no connection to those that need it, that need assistance. They have mm. no connection. And until you have a uh, uh, an experience that's up close and personal with an issue. And that issue could be health, education, poverty, I don't care, conflict, you know, any of the social issues that exist. Until you are in it and yeah. see it really close, and, it doesn't resonate with you. It's just another one of the world's many issues. And <clears throat> and I think one of the, the biggest um, things that I try and communicate to rich people is that, you know, it. and I point out what's happening with wealth. I point out that they're going to die. <laughs> it's the unfortunate thing. And they will not take it with them. And their children only need so much. And then what about the rest? Because the rest for a lot of people is a lot of money still. Yeah. And that wouldn't it be nice if they did something that gave their life purpose and you know helped the community because it will help the lives of their children and the grandchildren down the line. And I point out to them that um, it, it, the decision doesn't have to be – it's not a binary decision. It's not like you have to give up your Gucci's for, um, for uh, a, a, a burlap, you know, toga and sandals. There's so much that you can do and still live a very wonderful, luxurious life yeah. and still do good. And that, that doing that good is, feels good. Yeah. It actually feels good to to give back. I try and point out all these things and sometimes it resonates most often it doesn't, or it resonates for a very short period of time
0: and then it kind of, but but then, then help me understand this. Like what, what is it about the immense cushion of wealth that then people aren't prepared to trim down to that point? It's
1: identity. It's identity. So, and this is something that I, I kind of figured out a long time ago. It's like, We live in a a society that glorifies wealth, glorifies success and measures it with numbers, okay? Most people attach their identity to their wallet, to the size of their wallet. And they feel, I know, I've felt this myself over the years at particular times, like when my wealth, my wealth does a lot of ups and downs because I live in a, you know, in an envi- in a, in I have a, a sense your downs
0: where... are not real downs. So no, 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 but it, you know. no, there are yeah. times
1: when I'm very stressed out, where I've lost a lot of money on yeah. things, very, some, you know, it happens. Yeah. And it happens to every successful person. Times where you're really doubting whether you're going to make it or not. Okay. You, know, you could fall apart. When was
0: the last time that was? It, it happened four like, or five years like, ago. Really?
1: Seriously, yeah, when the, the start, when the resource market collapsed. Oh, yeah, okay. And you know, I had a, lo- a lot of my wealth in the resource market. I woke up one morning and it was all gone. No. And I had obligations and most of those obligations were obligations by my foundation right. to do some things. And all of a sudden, I'm going, oh my God, I don't have the ability to carry through on my promises and I had to really figure that out. But, you know, I'm digressing here, but, but uh, the, the,
0: the- But your identity was going to be basically stripped, is that what you're saying? Yeah,
1: and, and, it's, and it's a scary situation when you've attached your entire identity to wealth. So what I try and convince wealthy people to do I say listen make a trade attach your identity to your philanthropy
0: mm.
1: it's just it's even more rewarding and and I and I try and convince them that really it is way more rewarding when you attach your identity to doing important things on the philanthropic front rather than saying well you know this year you know I I went from you know a billion to two billion. I mean, who cares at the end of the day? It doesn't really matter, but people do care because that's where it, they attach
0: it. Sounds like media have to stop also publishing these Forbes wealthiest lists I know, that, and I know. Uh, Canada's wealthiest and uh, all those lists because they, it's crazy. I, it, my guess is that people look themselves up, right?
1: They compete to be on those lists because they measure their self-worth by where they rank on that list. However it's measured, whether it's a Forbes you know, 500 or whether it's, you know, some other magazine article that tells who the most important people are. And, you know, it, it's, it's a ridiculous concept because it doesn't focus on, I think the, the best human beings are people that, you know, leave a mark, yeah, make a difference for everybody else.
0: Yeah. Well, that gives us an opportunity to introduce, because I think people often need the enabler, to really bring them into this scene of philanthropy. And, and uh, my hunch is that Bill Clinton was one of those people for yep, you. Yeah, definitely. Um, your first meeting with him, I think, was what, 2005? Somewhere around there? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's he's already at that point uh, not a president, uh, beginning to build a foundation. Um, what is it about you, you think, that, that attracted him? Because I've heard you talk about what, Attracted you to him, but yeah, what, what was it
1: about you? That's a really good question. um I think, and I don't know what went on inside his own mind, but I think that uh, we hit it off very quickly, and we hit it off, in my opinion, for two reasons. One, we had similar interests in books we were reading. It just oh, yeah. happened to be a conversation. All of a sudden, I realized you realized I was reading a book that he had read, and and he was going. Why are you? And it was. It was about the Roman Republic. It was about. Uh, it was called uh, crossing the Rubicon. It was about Julius Caesar huh. uh, and, uh, making that decision when it turned from a republic into an empire. And um, and he knew the book. And we started talking. So we said, "Okay, there's a guy that actually reads, <laughs> you know, because he's an."
0: He's, not not all politicians do. No, yeah. he's
1: an exception to yeah, the rule, yeah. obviously. Um, and the other part was that we had similar backgrounds. I think that was the most important part. When he asked me, right away, he asked me about my history, my life, where mm. I came from, mm. and I told him my life story, and it was quite similar to his in terms of how we grew up
0: in poverty. Although he, you know, he lacked the father figure.
1: He, yeah, and I did too in a sense. My father, although I had a father who was in in the picture, he was never around. He was always working yeah. in camps, mining camps building the Micah Dam in Revelstoke. I mean, he was there, the Coquihalla Highway. Mm. All these things that required blasters and drillers were far away, and we couldn't, as a family, live there. So I'd see my father once every three weeks uh, growing up, and and it wasn't easy.
0: Mm. That new saying, you know, someone's at the coal face of something now. That's that's like an old mining term, right? But you're at the front line, the coal face of it. Totally. So – with with Bill Clinton, um, were his priorities your priorities or did you reshape a bit of each other in that?
1: Well, you know, no, I wouldn't say exactly. He had a, um, a vision of building a foundation post-presidency and I think he did an amazing job, especially in the area of HIV-AIDS, yeah. um, where I helped a lot in the early days. Before we started the Clinton-Justra initiative in 2007, I spent two years... F- Putting a lot of my own money and raising money for his HIV/AIDS initiative, which was a brilliant way to find uh, to deliver affordable antiretroviral drugs to the developing world. Yeah, and I it was, it was it, and so we did that, and and I think his other big uh, contribution to philanthropy was the Clinton Global Initiative, which really over a period of ten years changed the way by which corporations and big donors looked at philanthropy it was uh, i i think that was the most important thing that he did in his post presidency but you know the <clears throat> the objectives diverge when politics come into it and you know it, he's a political person political family and that was the area they wanted to go in and you know it, it certainly didn't help my <laughs> my relationship with him but you know that's that was their choice you know the,
0: there are very few north american politicians i feel who can command a hall the way that bill clinton does yeah very few i mean like he he, he does these speeches where he starts in a point mm-hmm. he says you know frank i want to mention frank i want to talk about all the frank and then he goes off and he circles around and he goes and then he comes back to yeah. it and then he moves off to another point right that's there's like a, it's almost like a i i, I hear that it's It's something out of like the churches of the South and the way that the sermons came.
1: There's some similarities there. But, you know, I've watched obviously over a period of many, many years traveling all over the world with him. I watched a lot of speeches, a lot. And, you know, and you'd think that after watching a lot of speeches, you go, you know, I've heard this all before. But he had an amazing ability to surprise us all. Yeah. We'd be sitting in a speech somewhere in some part of the world, and, you know, he starts going down the same path, and then he introduces a whole brand new concept into it. And it's something with a hook. Right. And that hook is just magic. You know, when, and we
0: all... I think we think that he's distracting himself, but there is a. But I don't think he is at all. I think he actually is. He knows. Oh, he exact, tends. He, know, he knows where he's going to finish.
1: Yeah, he tends to ramble a bit because he loves to talk. He's a right. talker, and I'm not saying yeah. anything that's not known. But uh, and he does sometimes ramble a bit. You know, he gets into very long conversations because he's a wonk. He's a palsy wonk, and yeah. uh, so he gets into these. But he he knows how to he knows how to summarize something and close it.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, what's your what is your commitment into that? Into the, the the Clinton Joostra Foundation. Well, we
1: created uh, we, the uh, it was called the Clinton Joostra, um and uh, we've now changed the name to Elevate. Um, yeah. And it's still in partnership with 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 the foundation, the Clinton Foundation. Although we did announce at the time of the election, the campaign that we were going to separate hmm. because uh, they decided quite rightly, I think, at the time of the campaign that they weren't going to do anything internationally. It was just too too much too many potential conflicts. yeah, And so, you know, we made that agreement and we're still going through with it. And um, at some point, we're going to spin off the initiative with all its current programs around the world into my foundation here in Canada. Mm. And um, it'll be completely
0: separate. Because one thing I would imagine he also would have been of great assistance to in understanding, because he had, I think, a real power in doing this, is the piece that we have glossed over so far, which is the conflict Resolution piece, right? Where, where you know there, there's he has a real geopolitical understanding of how how to bridge some of those.
1: He issues. he does, but my um, my exposure to the world of conflict didn't come through Bill Clinton. No, it came through the Crisis Group, which uh. I. Joined the same year I met Bill Clinton. Okay, I met him in 2005. The same year I joined the Crisis Group, which is based in Brussels, and it's a conflict resolution and prevention organization. It's the best in the world. It's made up of you know 40 or so former heads of states, former foreign ministers, academics, you know, journalists, people that, and from all regions of the world, from all political spectrums, um, people that truly understand conflict and how to resolve conflict. And we have people on the ground, analysts on the ground, in almost every, in every conflict zone on, on the planet. And we report from the ground up what's truly going on. We talk to all sides, if we can, mm-hmm. of, a, of a conflict or a brewing conflict. And we try and find, recommend, and we do find recommendations of how to resolve the conflict. And, uh, and then we take those recommendations and then we advocate with the right policy decision makers to, to find solutions. And we were very much involved in things like the Columbia government agreement with the FARC. Okay. We played a very big role in yep. that peace negotiation. Yep. We played a very big role in the Iran nuclear deal. And so we're taken very seriously, and it's, so I, I've been with that organization 13 years now, and I'm on the board and the executive committee, and, and um, it's one of my biggest time consumers is, is being part of that organization because it's, it's, it is, I think, such an important organization. I think what we do is needed more and more today than it was you know, 13 years ago. Um, and uh, and I find it interesting. I mean, I, I, well, I've course. always been a student of history, so you know, history and geopolitics have always been of interest to me. So it's that that came completely separate.
0: I'm going to give you a chance to uh, perhaps uh, beat us up a bit in media here uh, for just a, a minute. It'll only be a minute, by the way. Yeah, um, okay. <laughs> I'll give you a minute. Um, but on on the basis of the kind of intelligence that the crisis group develops in understanding what's taking place on the ground, and then what you see in terms of the depiction of that mm-hmm. to the public mm-hmm. in general. How wide's that gap?
1: It's wide, and it's unfortunate because, you know, media is influenced by where that media is based. <laughs> uh, I always used to have a lot of fun uh, – I shouldn't say fun, but I used to find it really interesting. At the time of uh, around 2003 when the U.S. invaded Iraq, I used to get up in the morning and start with, you know, at one end of the spectrum, Fox News, and at the other end, Al Zero, and everything in between, BBC, CBC, CNN. And see how they each reported the same situation, the same event. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, you come to realize very quickly that media bias plays a very important role in what we perceive to be the truth. Yeah. And do we ever really get the truth? No, absolutely not. We don't get the truth of what's going on because in every conflict situation there are two sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. So if you're only being fed one side and it's been shoved down your throat, and you don't really understand that there is another side to the issue. There's, you know, there are things that are not reported. Yeah. And, you know, and that comes into play in a very in a very profound way in what's going on in the Middle East. You know, we're Unfortunately, there are many sides to the issues there, but we we don't hear them all
0: through the media. How worrisome is that for you? Because here here you are attempting to bring um, some solutions or at least some progress to parts of the world. Uh, You're attempting to do that, but you often have to almost penetrate a bit of the fog around public policy that the public might apprehend, Uh, and media are part of that. Uh, how how worrisome is it that we have in a lot of ways uh, uh, almost a polarizing media in parts of our world that don't particularly help the situation
1: well you know first you have to understand that media is not a service it's a business <laughs> and once you understand that then you then you have to just understand where that media is who influences that media and money plays a very big Role in all of this, yeah. this you know, it's something that people don't like to talk about, but it it does, and it does influence what the media reports. And, and if you look at what's happening in the U.S. today, I mean, I'll take it one step further. Um, you know, after uh, Citizens United, the case which basically allowed for the creation of super PACs, PACs yeah. that to me was the turning point in American history, and and it, certainly the turning point in the political system and the way that the political system works. And so what's happening is that now uh, policy decisions are made for the purposes of the highest bidder, if you want to put it in very crude terms. And so, you know, this is where you get coverage that's not accurate because it's only serving the interests of a certain class. And I hate to sound, you know, so alarmist, but you, you watch it, it's happening. And and it's and it's sad.
0: You do see um, an interesting pendulum swinging back to some degree, though, uh, since Donald Trump has come to power, where uh, organizations that are deemed to be responsible purveyors of media um, are actually starting to benefit. You know, the New York Times has never had more subscribers. The Washington Post is now larger than the New York Times online. It's made a, a pretty yep. fast commitment into this field. Um, you have foundation money that is working its way into organizations in the United States as almost a, a rear guard action in order to try to, you know, paper over some of the problems in yeah. the business models for media and all that. In this country, not so much. So, I mean, are we a little complacent about what might happen here? You know, do, do well, we? we don't have
1: the our problems that are not, are not as profound as the problems that are happening south of the border. Right. The division's not the same. I mean, we have divisions in this country, but they're not nearly. I mean, you're going to – in any country, in any society, you're going to have different opinions about, you know, what type of policies to implement for whose benefit, you know, and it's always a tug of war between, you know (laughs) – Taxes, lower taxes, higher taxes, social services, all these things. You can have that everywhere.
0: But those are those are debates that you think are far more acceptable than the debates that are taking place below the oh, border. Abso- yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's not and we're not even close. Hmm. Not even close. I mean the, what's happening in the south of the border, I think, is very dangerous. Yeah. It's a very dangerous time for America. And I think that, you know, these midterm elections that are coming up are probably the most important elections in US history. Mm-hmm.
0: And of course, they say it. that with every election. No, but, no, no, no. But I, know they, I case, know they
1: say that, but yeah. no, but this time it's actually true. The outcome of the midterms will determine a lot about the future of America. Hmm. And I think, and you know, I don't want to make light of this point, but you know, this is going to be depending on what you believe is important. These midterm elections are going to be the biggest IQ test and/or morality test that America's ever faced. Hmm. And so, it'll be interesting to see what what the people choose to do about what's happening.
0: I asked you earlier whether you think America is almost too far gone, but do you think that America can truly walk back what it has spoken in the last couple of years, even even in a midterm?
1: I I think that you can't walk it all back, but you can certainly stop it from getting worse. You know, it's going in a direction right now because it's the way it's being led by the Republic- could, because Republican Because you must believe
0: party. that Donald Trump could get reelected.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I really do believe that he could. Yeah. And I believe that the Republicans can win the m- midterms. And, you know, everybody's predicting it this blue wave, it, it may, may not happen. Yeah. And so, you know, the, we've learned very quickly that you can't trust the polls anywhere. You don't know what's going to happen, who's going to stay home, who's going to vote. Um, but I, I honestly think that. Um, unfortunately, the political system is broken. Hmm. You've got a system, you know. And I've talked to already about the, you know, the Citizens United and how that changed the game. You don't have a
0: Supreme Court that's going to overturn that, and that's
1: not—that's cer- certainly not going to no, happen. Not now. Um, but more so, you've got a political system where you have an election every two years, and you're campaigning two years in advance. So you're in a—you're comp- always in a continuous twenty-four-seven campaign cycle and you can't get anything done in terms of implementing policy without with a system that doesn't allow that to happen no. the fixes that are required are long term infrastru- infrastructural fixes with education and all sorts of things who's going to you know you almost need a 10 year mandate for someone to say okay we're going to fix this country And there's so many things that need to be fixed, and I just don't think that the system is set up to allow that to happen.
0: Yeah. You talked earlier about the Citizens United case and, of course, the super PACs and the rise of them and the bidding uh, for politics almost to uh, the way that it engenders that. And I've noticed that there are some Democrat candidates that are starting to say, well, I won't take PAC money. Do you think they're tying one hand behind their back all of a sudden?
1: There are a lot of people that say a lot of things and then change their minds in the campaign. Um, you know,
0: yeah, it's.
1: I don't know if they have any choice, right? <laughs> but to accept, unless you change the rules for for everybody. Yeah. So, and I know I, I hear the ones that talk about about not accepting Super PAC money. I, I just don't know how you how you win a grassroots campaign anymore. You know, just, you know, with just grassroots donations. Yeah. You know, when you have billions, literally billions being poured in, into-
0: Even to one race.
1: Into one race. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you've got, and you've got it on both sides. You yeah. know, and so what Bloomberg announced, he was going to put $80 million into re- re-electing Democrats and, you know, and, and on the other side, you've got a whole bunch of people
0: yeah. writing yeah. big checks. Uh, and the time we've got left, because you've been very generous with your time today, the um, <laughs> Map out. You know, you, you're you're somebody who is highly strategic around all of this. Um, is there an emerging area that you're beginning to get interested in that you think might might be the the next phase of your benevolence here?
1: Benevolence or business?
0: Oh, if you want to give us some business tips, no, that'd no, be no, great. Just, no, yeah. no, no. we'll take those right away.
1: Yeah. I could spend another hour talking about that, but um, no. But in terms of the philanthropic part of my life, which is really most of what I do. I have one overriding mission, and I think it's, it's, it's certainly shaped almost every initiative that I've gotten into in the last 10 years, 10, 12 years. That is that I want my foundation to select issues, identify issues, that where we can come in and do something differently, create a new model, do fix that issue in an efficient way with less money than has been thrown at it currently and in a sustainable way. And we did that, as we mentioned earlier, with the Mm street-to-home approach to homelessness. I've done it with poverty alleviation models in uh, Latin America and other parts of the world with respect to creating jobs that didn't exist by building these social enterprises. So that was a new model that took us years and a lot of money to create. And certain and on the refugee stuff, we're doing stuff that's novel every day. You know, the uh, taking the Canadian uh, uh, private sp- refugee sponsorship model and exporting that to other countries around the world. That's one of our initiatives that we're doing with the Canadian government, and UNHCR and uh, Open Society. We're uh, the Ascend initiative, which I've launched in Greece in partnership with Coca Cola and IKEA and others, uh, is basically r- recognize that the local NGOs that fix most of the problems in when, when they arise and this was is with respect to refugees are way more effective, more efficient, can get stuff done, know the landscape, much more so the international organizations that parachute in and try and fix the problems. So what the ascend initiative was all about was bringing a collaborative, of players that could work with local nonprofit groups that are already doing great work and making sure that they're properly funded, and that we give them innovative ideas of how to make make it efficient in the long term. Only less than two percent of all of the international aid goes to local organizations. Most of it goes to the big players, yeah. and there's so much inefficiency there. Right, right. right. Yeah. So yeah. that that is the overriding objective of
0: so my foundation. You've got to essentially a Frank Joostrom model.
1: It's a model, yeah. It's, it's it's fixing, finding novel ways to fix old problems. Yeah. <laughs> problems that have been around for a long time.
0: All right. So I've, I've got a last question. Um, let me try to frame it in the right way. What's the, what's the one thing you think you did right early that you would recommend to everybody?
1: Now we're talking business. Or are we... So, yeah, okay. go ahead. Um. Again, I get asked these questions in many different ways, but I, and I always try, because you can't pinpoint, when you look back on your life, you can't pinpoint any one thing that is the secret sauce. But I, generally speaking, fearlessness. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. if you either got it I've heard you, you, say, you, you, I've heard
0: you, you say you would jump out of a plane. I do. I've You've uh, done it.
1: Halo jumps, which is fr- from thirty thousand feet. Oh. Um, Good luck on that. You know, yeah. it's fine. but but that's not it. But that's not the fearlessness that I'm talking about. I'm talking about not being afraid that you're going to try something and fail, and that's what holds back most people is the fear of failure. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always go back to a great line that Steve Jobs had about that when he gave his commencement speech at Stanford University. He basically said, you know. Why be afraid of failure? You're already naked. You're going to die. You're already naked. Go for it. You know who cares if you fail? And I think if you have that, if that that's part of your DNA, and I, you can't you can't fake that. You're,
0: but is that that is DNA? That almost. is DNA. I, mean, you, I think you, it's. You DNA. Can can but you can you can work at the edges of it. You can
1: work at the edges of it, but you're either fearless or you're not. And I think once you overcome fear, then. There's no limit to what you can do because you're going to go, well – and I've been told my entire life, every time I've embarked on something that's new, it's usually the people that hide in the safety and the comfort of of, of the status quo that will object to what you're doing because they go, no, you can't be done. And I would, So many things I, were, I was told – It can't be done. I actually have a little sign on the edge of my desk saying it can be done. And, and I truly believe that because I always go, well, why can't it be done? And because it's not, and the answer is usually because that's not the way it's done. So what? (laughs) Change it. And I've had lots and lots of successes in life by just using that philosophy of, yeah, just, change it, you know, try something new, take a risk. But
0: doesn't, isn't the corollary of that though some regret along the way?
1: Yeah, lots of regret. There are lots of moments at three o'clock in the morning when you're staring at the ceiling, cursing yourself that you made the dumbest move on the planet, you dug yourself into a hole. You know, we talked about this earlier. You, you don't think successful rich people have moments where they're in self-doubt, where they f- fear that they've co- colossally screwed up it happens all the time you should read this uh, there's a, a great book uh, elon musk's story oh yeah read that book i mean <laughs> there is literally a moment that i identified well he seems with, to be
0: replaying that every couple yeah of weeks. no i yeah. know but i'm
1: saying that here's a guy that's achieved a lot whatever you yeah. think of him he's achieved a lot and so there was a moment that i had that i could relate to it, and he was talking to me, like three o'clock in the morning in, in, in bed and having the cold sweats and trembling because you realize that you are you know you've you can't figure out how to get out of a certain mess that you've created for yourself and you have to power through yeah it's not it's not always easy
0: we had somebody on our radio show uh who was talking about meeting Elon Musk in 2008 where he was completely down like absolutely out of money no money for SpaceX and stuff and the guy said well what, what do you have in the mind he says well i've got this car idea <laughs> and uh and he's and you know i really want to do this and he and the guy said well how much how much are you going to how much do these cars cost and he said uh, uh fifty thousand bucks and so he we went home and wrote a check for a hundred thousand dollars to him to, and got the first two Teslas off it you know they're, they're, that kind of fearlessness I guess yep. eventually came back to him
1: maybe look at that I mean look look at what Steve Jobs did you know and that was you know his his whole approach was doing something completely different than what people and people used to poo-poo him you know it's like it'll, you'll never pull it off yeah. Those are the people I admire, people that really take risks. Yeah. And I think th- th- that risk approach, I mean, it has to be intelligently thought through, but you have to take a risk and you have to be prepared to occasionally fail.
0: In your business life, in your philanthropic life, is there more fearlessness in one or the other?
1: Uh, I, I take way more risks in business, but that's my nature. And that's just because I'm an entrepreneur and I love trying new ideas sometimes they work and sometimes they don't but you know and sometimes you have to spend a bunch of years trying to fix a mess that you created
0: yeah seems like you've done pretty well okay thanks a lot for your time it's been great talking to you you. hope you enjoyed it yeah i have thank you it's the biv interview and i'm kurt lapointe we'll see you next time